0: All right, finger guns are active. We are live. Governor of Florida Ron DeSantis signed the most comprehensive anti ESG bill into law this week. Now he's turning attention towards the digital dollar CBDCs. What, how will these moves affect the great reset movement? Is he building a worthy defense? in the state or is it just a speed bump for the plans of the world economic forum also the supreme court is taking on a case that could have some serious ramifications for the administrative state we're talking about all of this and more on episode 396 of the in the tank podcast Welcome to the in the tank podcast. I am your host as always Donald Kendall joining me full crew. I got Jim Lakeley VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today? Good sir.
1: I'm doing pretty good. I think I'm having a pretty uh, pretty good hair day too, which I like on podcast day. That's great. You know, you, you fix your hair in the morning and then sometimes it's just perfect. Mm-hmm. Today isn't perfect,
0: but it's pretty close. And
1: Donnie, I know this means a lot to you. So may the fourth be with you.
0: Oh, that's right. It is Star Wars day. Um, I could relate to that. I cannot relate to good hair days. I've never had one of those in my life. Justin Haskins, you are the director of the Socialism Research Center here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Uh, I think all this
2: talk about uh, good hair, having hair, um, (laughs) is discriminatory. Mm. And frankly, I feel hurt, hurt by all of it. So, As usual, you guys start off the podcast just... Trashing my feelings doesn't matter. It's yeah, right. we got HR yeah, okay. on
0: line one. Also joining us, Chris Talgo, editorial Get director here the at phone. the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir?
3: I'm just really glad that Jim allowed me to not order off the kids' menu at our big lunch uh, last week. So <laughs> thanks, so- thanks, thanks, Jim. I was really, so, really if nice people you. didn't watch the last episode, you, you're not going
0: to understand this. But uh, my wife was watching the episode while she was getting ready for bed, or something like that. And she comes out of the bathroom and she's like, "Oh man, poor Chris! You guys were really wrecking on him." That's right. <laughs> it's like, oh, I didn't think it was that bad, but maybe I got to re-listen to it. We got a lot. It was, lots... <laughs> was justified. I cried
3: myself
1: to sleep all all last week. You yes. guys earn the treatment you get from me. That's that's all there that really needs
0: to be said. Audio only listeners. I do have to put this message out there that you can, that you're probably listening to the show on a Friday. You could join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time, where we are streaming on Facebook and YouTube and rumble and Twitter. You could join the conversation throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comments in the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Also, we do have that super chat function. If you want to basically guarantee that we will read your comment or question, at least by the end of the show, you could also, you could support the show that way and uh, get a, message across to us. Also, you could help out the show by doing a couple of things. Those audio only listeners that I mentioned earlier, if you were to leave a review for us on iTunes, that'd be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're watching the show, you could hit that like button, subscribe if you haven't already, share this content, or just leave a comment under the video. All these things won't cost you a penny, only it will cost you a few seconds, but help break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. So we do have a bunch of stuff to get to a lot of a lot of a pretty important stuff to get to. But something that might be impacting uh, everybody, maybe, I don't know, depending on what your viewing habits are, is uh, the news. I think this week, maybe it started late last week of the Writers Guild of America going on strike. So this is the union that represents thousands of writers for TV and movies, essentially all of Hollywood. Um, so all of terrible remakes and reboots that you've been waiting to be disappointed by you're likely going to be delayed you're going to have to wait a few more months uh, for that Uh, so this affects me who is uh, routinely waits to be disappointed by every other star wars show that comes out Uh, the cause of the strike has to do with residuals from streaming content some analysts are suggesting that the strike could last months And apparently late night shows, I almost called them late night comedy shows, just late night shows, we'll call them. And Saturday Night Live are quote unquote going dark in support of the strike Uh, or, uh, you know, more likely they just are trying to avoid looking like fools like the last time uh, the strike happened and the host just had to riff for an hour every night and they didn't have any pre-written jokes or material. So, Jim, what do you think about all this? Uh, Are you upset that you're going to have to wait even longer for new episodes of the Night Court reboot? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, gosh, I mean, you know, a
1: a life without late night comedy shows. How will we ever survive? I guess i will survive like I have for like pretty much the last 20 years, which is the last time I ever watched a Saturday Night Live show on purpose or any of the late night uh, talk shows. What I found interesting was that uh, the, the gals on The View had talked about this and said that the writer strike was going to affect the way their show operates, which <laughs> <The> means <view. laughs> that the stupid that comes out of their pie holes every morning is written for them by professional writers. So uh, if that show, it, it, it was impossible for me to imagine The View getting worse than it actually <laughs> is. Um, but apparently it can. So now I actually might watch a couple episodes. Just, oh, that just would let's be, see how
0: bad it could be. That would be very interesting. Like, what if what if what if their view when they didn't have any writers actually was like sensical at some points? Like that would be interesting. That'd be a cool experiment to, it, to see.
1: It would be like the actors in uh, uh Team America World Police, they would just say their names Whoopi Goldberg, and that's all <laughs> she
0: can say, like Matt Damon. You know, that, that's what it would end up being. Justin, Chris, are you guys uh, so upset about this development? Uh, what, what are your takes?
3: No, because I haven't watched Late Night in a long time because it's not funny anymore. But uh, one of the things that I write about this is this could be the downfall of the writers. Because, hey, guess what? There's this thing called Chat GPT. And you can just you can have Chet GPT write jokes and write monologues. So no, no kidding. I mean, I'm not I'm not, you know being uh, sarcastic here uh, there are people who are saying that if this strike does you know go on for weeks or months that this could literally be the end of these writers and they've done this before I I, I remember very you know uh, a couple times in the in the past couple of years that they've done this too so yeah I think I 2007 they might be fighting off eight. more than they could chew yeah
0: 2007 and 8 was the last time they had a big strike it lasted a couple of months and the biggest victim of that the show lost Justin, uh, oh, your yeah, thoughts right. on this? Mm.
2: <laughs> yeah, I have lots of thoughts on Lost. Um, <laughs> well, uh, no, let's no, get to that. No, go. Oh, sorry, forget okay. about the smoke uh, monster. Forget about yeah, it. so I, I don't know why. I, I don't know why we're like weirdly abs- focusing on late night television, as Jim pointed out. No one, no one cares. I I, I actually truly don't know how anyone can watch the last time the majority of
0: people get their news. So that that I mean, mean,
2: they no, they don't. They they they, (laughs) people say that no, that no, they don't. Donnie, the majority of people do not get their news from the late night. That is not true because that would require our entire generation. Our entire
0: generation got all of their news from the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Oh yeah, Daily Show is like not hyperbole.
2: That's not late night. First of all, that's just a terrible show. Uh, on at a different time that's not late night television but but the real but i i mean i legitimately am concerned um because we need uh more good star wars content and and if this affects anything having to do with house of dragons i will burn hollywood to the ground <laughs> because i really need that show i don't have anything else there's only so many times i can rewatch like. You know, the
0: office.
2: <laughs> the office. I've gone through the office like fifty billion times. I can't do that anymore. I need something else. And so, without this, who who are we as a society, and what is the point of life? I think those are the questions <laughs> that we all need to be asking ourselves on this on this day. Honestly, wow. and wow, it's are not going to force these than people. Others. Don't you remember that, that there's been times in the past where you know presidents get on television and whatever, and they. You know, someone's threatening a strike. It's like the air traffic controller strike. Jim probably remembers that, uh, you know, and and like rail workers or whatever. And and then you get like a president or someone who gets on. He's a hard line. No, you know, we're going to I'm basically going to force these people to go back to work. I don't really understand how any of that works, but I don't know why we aren't doing that now. I mean, yeah.
0: I'll if, scab. I'll, I'll say right now. I'll be a scab for the writers. I'm sure I could churn out stuff that's at least on par with, uh, you know, the Obi Wan Kenobi show. Like I think me, that's. I don't let think let that's a high bar to me.
2: There are there are literally millions of people, maybe even tens of millions of people, who who could do a better job writing a show, a full blown multi hundreds of millions of dollars show than than Book of Boba Fett. Okay. There are there They're are really people trash are in Star Wars right on May the 4th
0: here.
1: Yeah, this <laughs> is really not the appropriate right day for this discussion.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you're, I mean disrespectful. There, there, uh, no, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, you're right. That's true. <laughs> Actually, right, maybe this right. is the most imp- appropriate day. We're you know what? To you're right. Star Wars.
0: You're right. You know? All right, all right, all right. No one cares about any of this. Hopefully, well, hopefully they really. go on strike forever. I, I think the idea of late night shows being off. Being, you know uh going dark and snl going dark is a net positive for society oh, so just, just we one, should be in support of this
2: totally agree one, one i'm not in trick- support on either
0: side of the strike i'm in support of the strike
2: <laughs> i don't care about the strike but what other than how it impacts me directly because i'm selfish but the one <laughs> uh thing that i do think is really important is um the fact that late night survived covid You remember when they were doing COVID from like their bathtubs and stuff? And it was just like the weirdest stuff ever. There was no uh, people clapping in the audience and it was all over Skype. You know, it was like, that was, it? it it, it is incredible to me that that survived. So the fact that it survived that the writer's strike compared to that is, is nothing. So somebody is watching this and I just, whoever that is, get help, please. (laughs)
0: Can't help so, you. Well,
1: you, you got to remember that it's the Writers Guild of America that that gave the Colbert Show that cringy mm-hmm. um, do the vaccine dance, where he had cool. dancers oh, dressed they? up as as cool. needles. You know that was that's Hollywood at our best, right there, doing that ridiculous, right. cringeworthy comedy sketch on uh, on on Colbert. But
0: look, yeah, it, replace him with robots.
1: I'm with well, Chris. Yeah, ChatGPT <laughs> can't be worse than that. Well, actually, one of the one of the um, I, I was reading about this yesterday. One of the things that the writers guild is striking over and wants to make sure they get assurances for they don't just want a bigger piece of the streaming pie they also want want it so that ai will not take their jobs away that it would not be legal for you to be using something like ChatGPT, gpt which again is just a public forum one i mean the real ai is already way better than that and we just sure. haven't gotten access to it yet and so that so they want to they they this could be the last writers guild of america strike we ever see because the Writers Guild of America could disappear because they could frankly just be, they can be replaced for the most part oh my God. by by ChatGPT. ChatGPT uh, Chat could write an entire season, Justin, of Book of Boba Fett for you. And it would be, there's a 99.9% chance whatever AI comes up with for a plot line and, and dialogue for a brand new season of Book of Boba Fett would be better than what the uh, the crummy writers of that show actually came up with.
0: Yeah, no, yep. I, I don't doubt that at all. And I actually want to uh, put that to the test. I'm going to work for the next week <laughs> with ChatGPT to come up with a good, no, no, great season two of Book of Boba Fett. But we should move on. We should move on. No one cares about any of this. So <laughs> let's get on to something that actually impacts uh, our you know, our lives, uh, the, the country at hand, the policy across the world, all of this stuff. So we've been waiting for a while now. There were causes for concern here and there that it wouldn't happen, but it happened. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law the most comprehensive anti-ESG bill we have yet to see in America. For those who are not constant listeners, uh, I'm just going to be very brief about this. ESG, or Environmental, Social, and Governance Metrics, is the backbone of the Great Reset. The World Economic Forum and its supporters of the Great Reset envisioned a world where so-called shareholder capitalism was replaced by stakeholder capitalism. And this stakeholder capitalism was proposed as a way to make sure capitalism worked for everybody. Every single stakeholder from the CEOs of major corporations down to the guy that's shoveling garbage into a garbage pile. Companies would no longer be judged based on simple objective measures like profit or income or how well they supply goods and services to people. Instead, they would be judged on a social credit score composed of metrics measured a, measuring a company's impact in regards to climate change, social justice, and racial equity. So when you hear these buzzwords, when your average person hears these buzzwords, they might think, oh, yeah, that that could be good, you know, maybe maybe companies should be judged based on some of these things. But as we have exposed over the past few years on this show at the Heartland Institute and with the help of Glenn Beck, ESG is a mechanism designed to control the economy and society by extension by making all sorts of services, whether they be financial or government contracts or anything like that dependent on subjective ever-changing cronyist scheme cooked up by the ruling elites and the bright minds over at the davos well after sounding the alarm for years lawmakers are taking notice and doing something at the state level to combat esg like i said the backbone of the great reset and this move in florida is the biggest one yet so justin you've been paying closer attention to this than probably anyone uh can you tell us about this bill or this law now and why you're so excited about it?
2: Right. So as you mentioned it's the most uh comprehensive ESG legislation that we've seen passed in any state. We've we've had led ESG anti-ESG legislation really started taking off um proposals for it back in January of 2022, so about a year and a half ago. Um really sparked by, uh, the great reset book that you and I worked on with Glenn Beck. Um, it was a, it, it just, it was the number one book in America. It brought ESG to the forefront of the conversation on, on individual Liberty and a whole bunch of other things. And, um, lawmakers, state lawmakers started to take notice at that point in time, um, reaching out to the Heartland Institute and, and trying to work with us on various forms of, uh, you know, ESG legislation ideas and getting educated on the issue and things like that. And so from that point forward, really, um, you and I and a whole bunch of other people started working really closely on ESG and forming lawmakers, speaking in front of lawmakers. I've probably spoken to hundreds of lawmakers across the country on this issue. It's not an exaggeration. And as a result of that, you know, two dozen states proposed various forms of legislative or executive actions or things like that 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 would address the ESG uh, issue from a bunch of different w- uh, ways. Okay, there's a bunch of different ways to do it, and uh, every state kind of took a different, slightly different approach. Um, but what they did in Florida, which is what's really special about this, is um, they tackled it from a, an all encompassing approach. They, 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 what they did is they said all the ideas out there about how we take on ESG social credit scores. We're just going to do everything. That's right. what we're going to do. We're going to do everything here and hope that it all sticks and hope that it may, has the impact that we want it to have. And we're going to, we know the left is going to attack us on this. We know the left is going to try to tear us down. We know the big bank lobbyists and everyone else is going to go after us, but we're going to do everything here. Now, that that approach was taken in other states, but it failed every single time because the bank lobbyists would win and establishment Republicans would often come in and they would uh, kill legislation that seemed like it had a pretty good chance of passing. And so this was the first time that we saw um, uh, the good guys, frankly, win on this issue in an all-encompassing way. Uh, so just really quickly, what does it do? What does the this ESG legislation do? Um it, it does a whole bunch of little things but the three sort of big things that it does is it makes it, it 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 makes it so that the state of Florida doesn't put any of its investment money, pension money, other investment money that the state has into ESG related funds and organizations that are actively promoting ESG. So the idea behind that is we don't think that we should be putting our tax dollars toward this movement to completely reform, reshape all of Western society. To It's it's like ESG is one of the biggest parts of the Great Reset machine, and red states all across the country are literally funding that machine. They're fueling it with their money. And so one of the things it does is it says pension funds in the state of Florida, uh, public pension funds can't do that. Government contracts in the state of Florida are now not going to be we're not going to be uh, the government isn't going to be investing directly working with directly organizations that are actively promoting this um, and the detail there are details of that and caveats and everything, but it's it's those are two really good provisions. And then the third big thing that it does is it makes it so that financial institutions, specifically uh, banks and other depository institutions like that, can't use their power. To um, enforce ESG metrics on their customers, both businesses and individuals. So, no social credit scoring in the banking industry in the state of Florida. So, if a bank says, uh, you know, you come in to get a loan, and we've and we've heard lots of stories about this all across the country. Uh, someone comes in to get a loan, a small business owner or something, and the bank says, eh, you know, yeah, we don't think that you've made enough uh, statements about. Uh, the Paris Climate Accords of being um, uh, pro-green energy. Mm. And we would feel more comfortable if we're going to do business with you if you would make some public statements to that effect. And if yeah. you don't... This is, not, I an I don't this is be, not an exaggeration. Not an exact This is a real example. This actually happened. And what this what this does is says, no, you have to base banking decisions on banking um, considerations. Okay? So how likely are you to pay back the loan? Things like that. The no, The things that banks historically have normally cared about. They're saying that's the stuff that you have to focus on. You can't look at someone's tweets and say, we don't like your political positions on something, or you're a Republican, so we're not going to give you a loan for that reason, or you voted for Donald Trump, or you like Bernie Sanders, or whatever it is. You can't use non-financial criteria. For the most part, with some exceptions, you can't use non-financial criteria when determining who gets access to banking services and loans under this bill? The big There is a big carve out there for religious liberty because one of the concerns was, okay, well, what if you have a, a credit union that's like a, a Lutheran credit union and their whole business is based around this idea, right? Or, or something like that, right? And you can imagine you might, there's a bunch of religious institutions that have these kinds of things. Um, and it's not necessarily just Christians. You could have Muslims that have something like that as well or whatever, right? Um, what about them? Well, the bill specifically creates a religious liberty exemption so that you're not going to have a situation where someone's being forced to violate their religious beliefs. Okay. So this it's non financial criteria, other you know than if you're a religious institution, you know what that's you, have doing, a, though. you know what that carve out's
0: doing though. What is well, it? you already talked about this, how like climate uh, climate alarmism is becoming like a cult or a religion. They're just going they to codify that, that and boom, there they go. All they have to they do is declare that. it.
2: You know, that's not a bad trade off though. If they actually were to admit it, that <laughs> right. would be pretty useful for us too. I, think. Uh, I, so, I see a couple. Anyway, of com- that's the big picture.
0: Yeah. Yes, yes, that is a great, great big picture. I see a couple of comments that I wanted to address real quick. One from Doug Troyer here. Glenn Beck is how I learned about ESG. Gary over here says me too, Doug. Uh, to which I want to respond. You're welcome. Uh, so let's, <laughs> let's move on. Chris, you've been following the progress of this movement of the anti ESG and all of that stuff from the
3: start. How do you feel after seeing this big move in Florida? I think it's a step in the right direction for sure. You know, Justin laid out what the bill does. And I think that uh, most Americans <clears throat> would, would support this. Um, I think, I hope more states do follow suit, uh, but Donnie, I do want to just kind of uh, touch upon something that you said earlier. So, one of the things about ESG that you know the the proponents of it all constantly say is, "Hey, this is about getting corporations to do good things, social good, and all that." I'm in favor of that, but I'm in favor of corporations choosing to do that, not being forced to do that. So, you know, if <clears throat> if a local uh, company, you know, in uh, Arlington Heights or in Buffalo Grove, you know, this. This uh, area said, "Hey, we want to, you know, uh, help contribute to, you know, cleaning up a local park." I would say, "Great, that is great." I really hope you do that. However, I do not think that companies should be forced to do that, and and I do do not think companies should be forced to pursue the social justice causes that the architects of ESG want them pursue. I think that companies should have the choice to pursue whatever social causes they want to do on their own volition.
0: And to add on to that, that the companies and these corporations have to be beholden to the consumers first and foremost. So if they do pursue something that uh, you know the vast majority of their of their customer base rejects, then they feel the brunt of that. But the way that the ESG system and I won't get into all the specifics, you can go check out some previous episodes of this or any other things that we put out on ESG on stopping But it puts the the main person that they're trying to impress or the main vehicle that they're trying to impress is this ESG social credit score. So the customer's. Or become secondary, so that's another perversion of right, right. Because
3: all I'm trying to say is, obviously, I believe in shareholder capitalism, and I think that you know a company's, uh, you know, uh, let's just call it
0: capitalism.
3: No, (laughs) but what what I I I think that a company obviously should make sure that they are doing everything in their power to make sure that shareholders get the maximum return on investment. However, I don't think that these corporations, well. I, I don't want people to to say well corporations are only concerned about the bottom line and that's all they care about and it's all about maximizing you know the uh the return on investment so that the uh the you know CEO can get a you know higher pay package or whatever I do think that corporations and I think most corporations do this on their own and I think that what's happened with ESG is that now you've got this force that's you know put into place where it's 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 you know trying to push corporations to only do that on behalf of left-wing social justice causes, right. and I think most—I well, I shouldn't say most, but I think that many corporations would actually do that on their own, and I think that many of them would actually do that in favor of uh, uh, social justice causes that all Americans, you know, are in favor of.
0: Sure, sure, Jim. Uh, we could be witnessing a perfect storm of anti-ESG movement. Uh, not only is this occurring in arguably the most important red state in the country, but the governor signing it could be the front runner for the Republican nominee for president. Uh, What do you think about all of this?
1: Well, I think that certainly helps his chances to be the front runner of uh, the Republican Party going into 2024, because he's actually the only governor I can think of. I mean, he's racking up. Ron DeSantis is racking up a uh, a checkbox list of things that any rock rib conservative pro-American voter would want to see. And starting with this ESG stuff. And it's like, look the ESG scheme is basically a socialist plan. it's a socialist scheme. And what have socialists done in, in every modern society in which they've they've taken control? They've exploited the younger generations who live a really good life, a, a life that generations ago couldn't even be imagined how how comfortable and luxurious it is and they convince them that uh, the world that they ex- that they're experiencing is, is really not just. there's no justice to it uh, that it doesn't work for the people. And that capitalism uh, only cares about profit, which is actually great. Uh, do, look up some Milton Friedman videos on YouTube. Uh, and he will explain much better than me that uh, the pursuit of profit is actually the pursuit of the greatest societal good. And that so what if a CEO has seven vacation homes and his own private island in the Caribbean because the benefits of of unregulated or unbridled capitalism is so good. Uh, for for the whole of society, that that's 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 not something anybody should even be uh, concerned about. But what is but what does all what does ESG and all this stuff do? Um, you know, we we talk about as we say here, stakeholder capitalism instead of shareholder capitalism. So it so so basically, uh, these are people who who don't have their you know a stakeholder really. Let's be honest, are people who really don't even have a, a legitimate stake in advancing the economy and society. These are these are the takers, as it were, instead of the makers and these takers are the beneficiaries of all the stuff that the shareholders invest in and the makers actually do um uh, but again you know, to 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 foster a socialist revolution you have to convince enough of the people you know the working class that they to be resentful of the makers to say that these people are 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 in, uh, unjustifiably wealthy they're way too wealthy and so they, they need to be punished and their wealth needs to be taken away um so you know what we have here is is with ESG is a is a is a uh, let's just say an attempt to control society, but the socialists this time are smarter than they were in the socialist revolutions for most of the twentieth century. Instead, they've gone to the makers, and they've said, "Here's a better idea. I know there's you know Venezuela and all these all these places. You know you don't want uh, torches and pitchforks outside of your corporate offices either. So here's a bargain we can make. We will work together." to control society we will increase our political power while you will increase your economic power and strength over the market because we'll rig it all for you and then together we will be able to uh, you'll be able to profit and we'll be able to control society i mean it's like it's like Darth Vader going to Luke Skywalker may the fourth be with you and saying if we join force, forces we can even surpass the emperor and we will rule the galaxy as father and son the the government and the and the and uh, these these companies that are embracing ESG are trying to create that kind of dynamic to basically rule over society uh, to the benefits of only them and to the detriment
0: of ordinary people like you and me. Right. Yeah. Like I've said before when talking about ESG, ESG is the biggest, croniest system mm-hmm. ever devised by man. That that's the that's the simplest, quickest elevator pitch for explaining what ESG is without having to resort to Star Wars analogy. It
3: also should be. <laughs> I also think it's very uh, important to note that ESG investment funds, by and large, are doing much poorer mm-hmm. than all other investment funds. Uh, ESG uh, index funds in particular are down you know, quite a bit since their inception a few years ago. So if, if you are actually putting money into these ESG funds, which Bank of America would love me to do, although I'm not going to, you're going to lose money right right
0: uh there is a comment here jennifer gross state representative saying thanks for all you do i tried to join your legislator group was unable to i think andy shot her a message saying shoot media at heartland.org and email and we'll help you out with that so if you're still listening jennifer gross definitely do that we'll help you through that system uh so yeah ron DeSantis is really putting himself out there as like the anti-esg guy uh that's fantastic me and justin were dreaming of that uh, a year and a half ago so the fact that it's actually happening is unbelievable he's also the guy that started the anti-ESG state coalition signed by what like 19 governors if I'm not mistaken
2: 17 or 18 something like that
0: right right something like that so not only is DeSantis leading the charge at the state level against ESG the backbone of the great reset but his next major target appears to be a preemptive attack on the digital dollar or the national CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. So we have a clip of DeSantis speaking. This clip was on Tuesday, I believe. I think it was right after he signed the anti-ESG bill into law. So this is DeSantis talking about a potential CBDC. Go ahead and play that clip. Mr. Andy.
4: The danger of the the digital currency is is that, one, they want to make that the sole currency. They want to get rid of crypto, which my view is, is like if you want to invest in crypto, it's up to you. You can do it. I mean, like you can make those decisions. Uh, But they don't like crypto because they can't control crypto. So they want to put everything in a central bank digital currency. And I guarantee you, if they're able to ever get away with that, they will impose ESG and social credit scores onto that. Uh, And that's going to be a huge reduction in freedom for people in this country. And so what we've said, what we're going to say in Florida is they haven't done it yet. I don't think Congress would authorize it. But if the Fed or the Treasury tries to do it unilaterally in Florida, we'll have a prohibition um, against that. And I think that that's ensuring uh, your financial independence and making sure that we don't have a financial surveillance state where they know every transaction uh, that that you're making. I think that that's fundamentally wrong.
0: Yeah, so this, this again is DeSantis articulating the problems with these schemes very well. Uh, I would have suggested that uh, ESG could be embedded into a CBDC, but whatever, that's close enough. But he's recognizing that it's an end to financial freedom and the inherent control that comes along with this, as opposed to the inability to control cryptocurrency. So all those are very important messaging uh, ways of messaging that he fit into about a minute soundbite. So just like the clip that we played before when he introduced this anti ESG legislation a couple of months ago, like he was just hitting like the issues right on the head. So Justin, what do you think about these statements from DeSantis?
2: Well, I, I want to start by saying, I totally agree that a CBDC is, um, you know, perhaps the biggest threat to individual freedom of any active proposal being floated around right now. I mean, this is, this is the one and he, Governor DeSantis is exactly right that if this were to actually become law, um, you know, you wouldn't have any privacy. I mean, you, you wouldn't have control over money. Um, I wrote an article for Fox a week or two ago that did very well that uh, mentioned um, that you wouldn't own a CBDC. You actually wouldn't own your money under a CBDC-based system because the money would always have to be housed in some kind of financial institution like a bank and a depository account. Uh, or a depository account with the Federal Reserve directly, which I think is most likely. And when you put money in those accounts, you don't own it anymore, officially, okay? So um, if you don't own your money, then you don't have privacy rights. Um, not as many as you yeah. otherwise would have. And And whatever privacy rights you do get are regulatory things put into place by the federal government or things like that. You don't have anywhere near the kind of constitutional protections, at least historically, when you don't own the property. Now, there are exceptions to that. And maybe there will be a CBDC design that has lots of privacy in it. A CBDC could be built on blockchain technology, and you wouldn't have to worry about that. But it's not going to be because the whole point of the CBDC, as as DeSantis noted, is to control it. I mean, that's the point. They want centralized control of the money, because if you can control the money on a micro level, you can control the economy. Now, what's really interesting about what Governor DeSantis is promising, though, because there's a couple of things here. um, He wants to stop a CBDC from being used in Florida, And my understanding is that there are uh, some of the things that they're looking at doing are changing the uniform commercial code in Florida to make it more difficult to use something like a CBDC. And there's some other stuff as well. But the statement he made was very sweeping. It was essentially, look, if if uh, the Biden administration tries to do this or if the Fed tries to do this, we're just going to not allow it in Florida. And that raises some really interesting constitutional questions because constitutionally, the federal government has the right to decide what money is and states don't have the right to decide what money is. That's very clear in the Constitution. So how all of that exactly plays out is going to be very interesting. I'll also add the Constitution is very clear that you have privacy rights, at least some privacy rights. And that you can't have there's no unreasonable searches and seizures from the government and other things like that. But a CBDC by design would be the government or its agent or whatever uh, would know everything you're doing all the time. That's that that's actually their uh, one of their big um, things that they're claiming as a benefit to this because we could stop organized crime and terrorism. People wouldn't be able to pay with cash anymore, so all this illicit activity and all these people who are you know scofflaws who are avoiding taxes all that stuff right like all that could be dealt with with a cbdc now a lot of it depends on the design of it and we don't have the exact specifics but right now i mean lo- t- there's tons of legal questions surrounding what states can do to push back what the federal government can do and I'll just leave it one last thing on the legality of all this. One of the really interesting things that is not getting any attention at all, but it is incredible that this is the case, is that when the Biden administration, when Joe Biden released an executive order in March of 2022, instructing the federal government to study the issue of CBDCs that launched the whole Biden administration's efforts for a central bank digital currency, one of the things that it commanded the Department of Justice to do was to specifically answer the question, can the federal government create a CBDC without an act of Congress or do we need an act of Congress? All right. Now that's a really important question because if, if they need Congress, they're not going to get it with this Congress, no chance. But if they don't need Congress, well, then they're just going to do it by executive fiat. So the department of justice produced a report answering that question and a, and other questions related to digital assets. And they released it in the fall, but they did not make the section on the legality of, of the central bank digital currency available to the public. They hit it.
0: So I can guess what it says. I can guess what it says. (laughs)
2: Republican members of Congress contacted the department of justice and said, we know that you have this give it to us. We deserve to know. (laughs) We should know what your position is. And it's the last I heard stonewalled. No answer. So supposedly the Biden administration has a position on this officially, but they won't tell anyone. So for all we know, they could come out tomorrow and say, guess what, everybody? We've got the right to do a, a, a central bank digital currency and here it is. And then we'd have to, we'd have lawsuits. This is the only way to deal with it absolutely stunning that they would do that just absolutely stunning and shame oh, yeah. on the media Come for not on, covering man. that
0: yeah yeah, yeah. it's st- stunning if you you know haven't been involved in all of this stuff for as long as we have uh, otherwise it seems pretty par for the course but uh one thing that you had mentioned is that it's not like clear exactly what DeSantis could do and like i'll admit that like these statements and, and whatever he would be able to do really could just be symbolic but i'm fine with that like there is a level of symbolic moves that are there are very important that i'll defend uh all day long because the thing that this does uh well first off a lot of the strategy that the kind of ruling elite play by is to try to do things without People paying attention to it that's what they were doing with esg up until you know uh, all the stuff that that uh, has been done to expose it uh and that's what they were doing with cbdc's as far as i'm concerned uh just trying to do it without people paying attention oh no no don't don't look over here this is all just normal stuff going on don't pay attention to it but now we've got Ron DeSantis, like i said could be a front runner when it comes to being a Republican nominee for president, talking about this on a national stage, essentially. So he is bringing so much more attention to it that is undermining the strategy of these kind of ruling elite types. Chris, uh, I was surprised to see DeSantis say this. Uh, I don't uh, doubt that he would hold this stance, but the fact that it's on his radar. Uh, I think is a great, a great sign is the idea of a CBDC replacing the dollar being discussed regularly on cable news
3: networks. Mm, No, not really. I mean, they're they're, they're still completely obsessed with Trump, 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 January 6th, January 6th, January 6th. Little bit, you know, uh, that's basically all they talk about these days. Uh, But I actually have a quick question for Justin. Uh, Justin, have you heard anyone uh, say that the federal government would use the interstate commerce clause to say, hey, Florida, you can't do this because this will intrude upon interstate commerce? Because that's what the federal government almost always uses when they want to pass laws or, you know, regulations that aren't really constitutional, but they just use the uh, interstate commerce act as their go-to, you know, uh, reason. Are
2: you, uh, are you referring to the CBDC thing
3: or are you yes, referring to the, yes, for the CBDC? Yeah, so-
2: so in the Constitution, <clears throat> it actually uh, very specifically addresses um, m- money, the creation of money and the, and the management of money very specifically. <clears throat> and uh, it very specifically um, seems to indicate that the federal government has, for the most part, unlimited power in determining what money is and how money is regulated <clears throat> and setting the value <clears throat> of money and things like that. Um, and it specifically says that states do not have the ability to do this. Mm. So, I would think that was where where they would go. Now, I, w- I would also, s- I would think that they would probably allude to other things as well. Um, as you said, the Interstate Commerce Clause, one of their famous, uh, one of their favorite ones. They go to that all the time. Everything has to do with interstate commerce. Mm-hmm. Uh, surely, though, you could make a reasonable argument that money has to do with interstate commerce. I mean, that definitely seems like it would fall under that category to some degree, at least. So I, I think that uh, I think they would go directly to the clauses that have to do with money. There's also um, some other kind of general purpose clauses that they've used in the past in lawsuits about money that they would probably allude to. Uh, so it would be really tough, I think, for Florida to just wholesale prohibit it. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things that Florida can do because there are there are a lot of things in the commercial codes and the commercial codes are often state laws that could be tailored to make it really difficult to use a CBDC in uh, various kinds of transactions or something like that. Um, So for example, uh, laws that have to do with um, uh, money that you use uh, to get a loan or uh, down payments on houses or things, a lot of that stuff's governed by state code. And so you might be able to craft it in such a way that says that, you know, these CBDC can't be used for that purpose, but other U.S. dollars can be, but I think it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be really, really tough. The important thing, I think, though, and this is something that Donnie and I talk about all the time, um, is that when in doubt, states, in my opinion, when in doubt, states should always, 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 always push back against federal overreach, always. And, And even if they just think it's federal overreach and they're not 100%, always push back. And let the courts decide later on. You don't don't sit there and and agonize over whether you should do it or not do it or whatever. You go for it. And you let the courts figure it out later on. And that's how you should approach things. That's That's how states have been pushing back against the federal government forever. The left always does that. Always, always, always. They sue every time a law is passed on the right. And they sue at at the federal level, at the state level. They do it everywhere. They're constantly engaging in lawsuits, questioning things, passing laws that they suspect are not constitutional. They, They don't care. And the reason they don't care is because they know that if they throw enough crap at the wall, some of it will stick. And that's what they go for. And it has worked for them historically. And so I'm not suggesting we throw the Constitution out the window, but I do think, I do think that it is important for states to push back on the federal government. And uh, I think that uh, so much of what the federal government does is unconstitutional anyway, that we live in a world where if states aren't pushing back the left is going to win on every single one of these issues so always push back and let the courts say no after the fact that would I, be my recommendation
3: I, I just one other very quick question is there any talk of a uh, interstate compact uh regarding this issue
2: not that i'm not that i've heard of okay. not that i've heard of but that would that would also run into the same issues as what you were alluding to before you know if if uh, one state can't do it, then a compact of states definitely couldn't do it, right? So well, you, you've you got to deal with that issue probably before you're going to get a bunch of states all together working in unison on something.
0: So, Jim, uh, Ron DeSantis positioned himself as the anti-ESG guy, coming out swinging against CBDCs. I don't think he's going to get an invite to the next Davos convention. What do you think?
1: No, probably not. Uh, yeah, it would be. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it, boy, would it be great if he crashed that party next time? That'd be great. <laughs> (laughs) Yes, but just just thinking about that uh what are we going to call that the currency clause of the constitution instead of the commerce clause or is it part of the commerce clause i think Mm -hmm. they call the
2: coinage clause or something coinage clause
1: yeah well i mean the united states of america was a very different place philosophically when that was written in fact it it had to be spelled that kind of stuff had to be spelled out back then because there was still an assumption that states had a lot Mm -hmm. of sovereignty uh over the way their their States and overall society was governed. So you had to put things like that in there specifically, like it is not uh, very efficient economically for Florida to coin its own money and for South Carolina to have its own money and Ohio to have its own money. Um, but, you know, I, I find it, Justin, as you were explaining all of this, that, you know, it would take an act. It takes an act of Congress to issue a new dollar coin with like Sacagawea on it or Susan B. Anthony, or to, it takes an act of Congress to make those, those are really cool state quarters program, right? Where every, every state had their own, that takes an act of Congress, but completely upending our entire economic and monetary system. Well, that could just be done by the treasury department or, who knows who it doesn't really matter, it's all lawless. So, it, you know, what why not just have like the, the some random bureaucrat? Why not just have the department of the navy do it? I mean, that would be as legal and, and as sensible as having the department of treasury do it or the Fed do it, which is not a federal agency but it's its its own quasi independent um entity in which it, our entire system is now dependent. Um, you know, so I, I just it's just gobsmacking to me and. I agree with you that the, the left's idea, this is what the left does all the time. They throw a hundred crazy ideas at the wall, four of them stick. Then they go over to the wall, they pick up the other 96, they throw those at the wall, three more stick, and then they, they just keep doing it over and over until they eventually get their way. They're very, very patient. And so um, I, I mm-hmm. think it's, it's not ideal that it takes somebody like a governor of a state of Florida, to do his own version of pushing back at ESG and CB, uh, CDBC, and all that stuff, but it's better than nothing. And that's one way that freedom-oriented people can throw things at the wall to stop these freedom, uh, freedom-grabbing schemes of the left. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And and just and real
1: real quick, like I
2: I think just dovetailing on that. I mean, we if you if you keep attacking at the, this at the state level. ESG, CBDCs, any kind of federal overreach. And the federal courts end up striking all of it down. Let's say they strike down 100% of every attempt by Ron DeSantis to, to push back against the federal government, which is not going to happen, obviously. But let's say that they did. All, at least what that would do is, is make it very clear to everybody involved that the pressure is on Republicans at the federal level to solve the problem. And so then it becomes a necessity. There'll be a movement in that direction there. There is no one else who can fix it. It's your problem to fix it, right? And so there's so many advantages to doing this, uh, this kind of approach. And again, this is exactly what the left does on everything. So the reason they're so successful is because they've taken one of the reasons is because they've taken this approach and they've run with it for decades now. And the right is always so reluctant to do, to really push the envelope and do big sweeping changes. They shouldn't be, be bold and, and, and let's see where things fall afterwards. But you know, I mean, look, look, I mean, Donald Trump, right. What art of the deal before he was ever a Republican, right. What does Donald Trump teach you in art of the deal? You start high with your negotiating Knowings higher than you know you'll ever get. You get you start really, really high, and you know you're gonna come down from there. But if you start mid-level, you know you're gonna come down from that point, right? So you start way too high and then work your way to something that you're willing to settle for. The the right, for whatever reason, cannot figure out this just very basic principle of negotiation. But but Ron DeSantis actually gets it, and so. God bless him, because we are you we suggesting need that, that Ron
0: DeSantis read Art of the Deal? Because that's some breaking news right there. I, I'm I think, saying uh, Ron DeSantis everybody. lives Art of the Deal. <laughs> uh, so the uh, I'm, I'm glad that we did have a state rep watching uh, because the Heartland Institute has published a new policy study on ESG. This report was authored by Heartland research editor Jack McFerrin. It's a very holistic picture of ESG, its designs, its potential, its power, uh, and most importantly, what options exist for state lawmakers to fight back against it. So like we discussed before, a bunch of states have successfully taken action against ESG. This paper offers solutions for state lawmakers. There's literally stuff in the back of the paper that's just like, here, just take this and run with it. So the plan is to send a copy of this report to every state and federal lawmaker in the country. You should make sure that your state lawmakers see this report. It's incredibly important. It's extremely thorough. It's got everything that you would ever need to know about ESG. Uh, Guys, I I know I'm skimming over this uh, just because we've talked about ESG and everything like that on this podcast for all the time. So is there anything that I skimmed over that you think is an important detail that we should address?
2: No, I, I think uh, I, I think the if if you're looking to learn more about this issue, you want to know how it works. You want to understand the history of ESG. You want to understand what's been going on and why it's so impactful. You want an all-encompassing approach to this, and and hopefully a lot of lawmakers do. Oh, they should if if they if they don't, um, and their or at least their staff. In the case of the lawmakers, who have staff. Um, This is something for people who really want to dive into the issue. If you just want the basic talking points of it, there are parts of this that can provide that as well. But this is really meant for a deep dive into ESG, um, Mm -hmm. an all-encompassing sort of uh, approach to that. Uh, Jack McFerrin, who, who wrote the paper, did a fantastic, fantastic job. He's been working with us on ESG since he started here a while back. He's the research editor here at Heartland, and he and he did a fantastic job writing this paper. Agonized over large parts of it for for many many months, and it's a so this layout is too. oh I know well obviously it's a the most
0: layout. important thing yeah, I mean, yeah It just looks beautiful. It's,
2: well, you know appearances do matter. You're right. Um, <laughs> that's right. But it is I think that's the best way to to frame it. It's a deep dive into the ESG issue. So if you have a question about ESG and this paper doesn't cover it. We'd be happy to answer for you, but I I I kind of doubt it. Yeah, get I, it's in you. there. It's in there. It's a
1: it's yeah. a deep, it's a deep dive, but it isn't dense. It's very actually very easy to get through. And it's uh about 40 pages or so of of content explaining ESG and ways to and ways to fight it. Uh highly recommend it, whether you're a state legislator or not. If you re- if you want to understand the issue better, so you can explain it to your friends. This is the paper to read. Go to heartland.org. Very easy to find there right
0: now. Yep. Fantastic. Uh, So if I wanted to limit this podcast to an hour, I would skip this next story, but uh, I kind of want to talk about it. So forgive me if we go a little bit long. Uh, Justin's standing. So every time Justin's standing, we have to go a little bit long. So I do want to talk about this. So uh, this is a story that's uh, in Forbes. That's very interesting. So It feels like we have the Great Reset and ESG up against the ropes, uh, but we can't even for one second take our foot off the gas. Uh, These people aren't going to drop this. There's just no way. They've got far too much riding on this scheme. This is the scheme of all schemes, so they're not going to just like, oh, well, Ron DeSantis passed this bill. Let's move on to some, some other scheme to control society. No, no, no. They're going full force with ESG, so we have to keep the pressure on constantly day in and day out so uh justin and i have gone through great pains to stay up to date on all the different crafty ways esg is being enforced and carried out and um if you're a, a constant listener to this podcast or if you've read the great reset books or anything like that you might remember this story uh it's a story about how the uh, I forget who, Justin, you're going to have to fill in the gaps here, but the use of algorithms to calculate, to estimate what corporations or companies, small companies, ESG scores were. Can you do a very quick explanation of that story? Because the story I want to address ties into this.
2: Yeah, Moody Analytics. So uh, this is uh, Moody's investor service launched a product called, I think it was called ESG score predictor, if I remember right. And essentially what it is, is it's a, it's an algorithm. It's, it's a form of, you know, it's a form of AI really. And in some ways that, uh, what it does is it, it takes all the existing data that they have on, uh, a company, any given small business or medium sized business, which is not much, by the way, they use very little information about these companies to do this, and they develop an ESG score. They produce an algorithm-based ESG score for these companies, even if they don't have an ESG report to base it on. So just the mom-and-pop shop down the street, they can produce an ESG report using this, uh, predict- this ESG predictor. And you might say, well, how can they possibly do that? Um, And the way that they do that is they look at where the company is located, the kind of industry that it's in, and I think the size of the company as well. And they just assume, they just make assumptions about you. And they say, well, you know, you're a, 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 you know, whatever, you're a, a dry cleaner, and we think dry cleaners generally have this impact on the environment. And we, and you have five employees, and that means this, and you're located in this part of the, America, they can do it all over the world, by right. the way, you're looking in this part of America and that usually means that. And therefore here's a, A predicted
0: ESG score for you. Right. So even if you don't want to be part of the ESG system, we have this score predictor that'll put you in the system itself. And if your score is worse than what reality would show, then the onus is on you to produce your own actual ESG information to update that score and to have it reflect reality. So it's a very coercive way to make sure that everybody is playing the ESG game. Or uh, do you remember a, a few months ago? This is probably several months ago when Al Gore was at a World Economic Forum event. We talked about it on this podcast, and uh, he was he was complaining about the idea of corporations greenwashing or something that they that they would agree to doing some climate change effort, but in reality they wouldn't do it. And he talked about mm-hmm. greenwashing, and then his plan to dealing with that was this thing called a program called Climate Trace. So Climate Trace was essentially a global network of satellites that were going to monitor CO2 emissions from all different corporations and pinpoint what corporations and companies and industries were releasing what amount of CO2 into the atmosphere so that those people would be able to be held accountable. So that was an idea that he had. Uh, It actually happened. I don't think anyone ever talked about it, but it happened. It's called Climate Trace. It's active right now. Um, so all of these different things are just showing how technology is being used to uh, really enforce this ESG stuff, no matter what happens. And now I'm reading from this Forbes article that's titled, Are You Ready for an AI-Driven Radical ESG Transparency? So the author of this article talks about chat GPT, another thing that we've talked about on this podcast, and how their, people are using... Uh, chat gpt and ai-like technologies to enforce different climate stuff so reading from the article it says ai tools for sustainability and esg transparency are multiplying before our eyes chat ipcc can uh, converse about climate science using the latest and most authoritative scientific papers as its data input clarity ai digs around in company sustainability data and shares back simple graphics and reports. Greenwatch uh, AI compares companies' green claims against their actual carbon emissions, and Climate BERT fact-checks climate-related claims and can be used by governments to detect greenwashing. So basically, this article is explaining how chat GPT technology can soon, and in some cases right now, Pull up live data on your company or any corporation's climate impact, carbon footprint, water usage, supply chain info, whether or not you pay fair wages, anything. And this is massively supercharged version of what Justin was describing earlier with the, uh, the ESG predictor score or whatever. So, Justin, I thought this article was unbelievable. What do you think about it?
2: Yeah, this is this is incredible stuff. I mean, uh, we, you, and I have been working on a, a book with with Glenn that's going to be coming out in July. Uh, Glenn Beck called. Uh, dark future, and in dark future, we actually talk about some of this stuff—not all these companies, but this general concept—and we talk about all sorts of other uses for AI and and how that relates to ESG. And there's a ton of things that are out there, but this is this is the future. This and the Moody Analytics and all sorts of other. This is the future of how all these things are going to. All these reports, all these government decisions, all this stuff is going to be made based on AI-produced reports um, and, uh, and, and tracking using satellites and doing all sorts of other things. Uh, just wait until you have smart cities, just wait until you have smart cities and you have cameras on every corner, watching everything that you're doing, knowing every time you're filling up at the pump, like all this information see in the past. And this is why AI is so important. This is just really a fundamental thing, uh, for people to understand going forward into the future in the past. There's lots. Of, there's been lots of data for a while now, for a couple of decades. There's been tons and tons and tons of data being collected all over the place. Everything that you do on the internet is being collected somewhere, okay? Almost everything you do. And much of what you do in your life, the financial decisions you make, walking down the street, a lot of that stuff is actually, in some sense, collected somewhere, okay? But we've never really had the technology to take that data and use it, and and understand it, and manipulate it, and pr- and, and it's just because we haven't had machines capable of doing that. We have we either couldn't process it, or we didn't have the uh, the the manpower to actually comb through the data and make sense of it. And so policymakers and governments they had they've had all this data, they've had access to it. Private companies have had access to it, but they just can't really use it in a lot of advanced ways. Advertising was really one of the most advanced ways that this data is being used on a day-to-day basis. Social media and stuff like that also uses it, right? But now that we have more advanced forms of AI, we're starting to develop supercomputers and quantum computers that are capable of running really advanced uh, algorithms and uh, and, and combing through massive amounts of data. What you're going to see is more and more of that data is going to be used to target individuals, to target groups, to target people, to craft policies, to make decisions. uh, All of this stuff is going to happen uh, at a level that we've never seen before. Uh, The the, the interaction between machines and policymaking is, is uh, is going to be the issue of the next 100 years. It really is because of how powerful these machines are. And the more powerful they get, and they're gonna keep getting more powerful, and the more data you feed it, which they're then going to learn from and become even more better at predicting uh, uh, the future and determining uh, the best policies for things, the more control human beings are going to give these machines in our decision-making. And and that is a really, really scary thought. We're just on the edge of it. And climate change is a huge part of all that, right? Because now you know exactly what your neighbor is, how much your your carbon footprint is for your neighbor. And you know exactly how much that business down the street is using. And you have the ability to run algorithms to predict what people will do under a bunch of different climate scenarios and all sorts of other stuff. And it doesn't mean that they're necessarily accurate. That's not the point. The point is it's going to give people the belief that there's an accuracy there. And uh, that's that's what this, we're just seeing the early stages of it. This is just the start, but it's going to be Uh, it's going to be the biggest issue over the next century for
0: sure. Jim, uh, you told me earlier this week or maybe it was last week that uh, Black Mirror was coming out with a new season. Yeah, Um, I wonder if they're going to even be able to top what's really going on just now. (laughs) Like it usually predicts the technology of the future, but this stuff is scary enough as it is. What do you think?
1: Well, I mean, isn't it isn't it interesting that the only road to social utopia requires absolute surveillance of every aspect of your life without surveilling and knowing everything you do at all times. Can we, unless we have that kind of access to your life, we will never get to our socialist utopia. Uh, Gary had asked in the comments earlier, he said, how are they measuring emissions? You know, your emissions. And when I saw that, I was like, do you think that actually matters? Do you think (laughs) it actually matters how they're going to measure emissions? They'll just tell you what your emissions are. If you could figure out a way to accurately calculate and show it scientifically, accurately calculate your own emissions that you're actually responsible for, do you think you'd be able to replace the data the government is telling you that what your emissions are? Do you think they let you do that? Of course not. If you believe that, you believe Al Gore is actually uh, very soon going to move out of one of his 20,000 square foot homes and start living you know, that low carbon life that he wants for everybody else. That's the thing that is super scary about this stuff is you know with, with artificial intelligence, it's not the technology itself; it's how it's being put to use, and it's being put to use to to take away our liberty and our freedoms, and to rule us and to hurt us into into categories in which we cannot escape. Everything that is happening right now, through through from ESG to central bank uh, central bank backed digital currencies to th- this sort of thing, is all designed to control you. To take away your freedom and your liberty and that that's what's so scary about it you know in black mirror in the show black mirror there was at least a conceit that the people volunteer. That, that was kind of one of the points that charlie brooker who created the show uh, was black mirror is the is the face of your of your cell phone that's what the black mirror is and there was always this idea that he, what he was worried is that humanity would, would voluntarily give themselves up to this kind of surveillance we're not going to have that choice. It is just going to happen. These governments and these, these powerful entities around the globe are going to be using this technology to control you without you ever giving your consent to that. That's, that's what's really scary about what's happening right now. I'd love to end this podcast on a positive note, as
0: usual. There we go. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Chris, do you, do you have anything to contribute to this part of the conversation in regards to the ESG and technology?
3: Uh, you know, this this reminds me a lot of <clears throat> after uh, September eleventh, when the uh, Patriot Act was passed and uh, the NSA started gobbling up. All people's text messages, phone calls—you know, uh, everything they were doing on their keyboard, everything. But what, what, what the problem was back then was they didn't have enough analysts to, to, you know, comb through all that data. There was just way too much of it. So I am worried because if they do have quantum computing, supercomputing, and AI technology that can comb through these things and just instantly pinpoint red flag, there, this guy Google searched, you know, blank too many times. uh, He's, you know, he's a problem. Uh, I mean, it's endless, and I think that. AI, quantum computing and supercomputing do give them the ability to, uh, you know, to set up, uh, you know, this just massive data, you know, surveillance, uh, you know, state that they love to do. And I think that that a lot of this is predicated on what the Chinese Communist Party is doing. And I think that the Chinese Communist Party is doing it. And a lot of American politicians, you know, Joe Biden in particular looks at that and says, you know, I kind of like that road. I kind of want to go down that road you know, me, I want nothing to do with that road. And I, and I do think that most Americans want nothing to do with that road. So I think this is something that is just going to have to be hashed out, you know, in the future. But I think that the more and more people realize that these technologies definitely have, you know, a good side, but they also have a dark side that the, uh, you know, American people need to understand that. And we need to, you know, make sure that we are not letting, uh, you know, politicians and, you know, technocrats abuse, uh, these technologies and you know, uh, letting them use it to put us under their thumb even more than we already are.
1: Would you, would you look at Chris? He's trying to earn himself a grown-up lunch. Look at that. He's coming <laughs> around. And uh, yeah, you're back on the adult menu, buddy.
0: All right. Uh, we are five Just minutes over. Jim, I mean, should we address this last story? Can we briefly, maybe we can tease it for future reference. What, what do you, how do you want to handle it?
1: Well, I think we should. We should. It's an important enough topic. I think we should talk about it for more than thirty seconds. But it, it's a, it's an, it's a new uh, Supreme Court case that the Supreme Court has just agreed to take, and it could put into jeopardy the so-called Chevron Chevron doctrine, which uh, has ceded the power to regulate our lives to unelected bureaucrats who work, who basically. Just by fiat, decide what the rule is, which becomes law. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it's important. The, the, the story that I saw was in town hall. Is SCOTUS about to annihilate the administrative state? Uh, I wish. I wish I could be that optimistic. Maybe it could happen in this Supreme Court. The question is whether or not the administrative state would actually adhere to the law handed down by the Supreme Court, which is a completely different question. But uh, it's a rare good development for freedom that I happened to notice and thought we could talk about it. Maybe we'll do it next week.
3: Just just real quick. So Donnie, I'm writing an op-ed on this as we speak. And uh, the case in question uh, is the National Maritime uh, Fisheries Service uh, is using a 1976 law that uh, basically says that the uh, the Fishery Service has the ability to force uh, fishing companies to put government employees as monitors on the boats, so that they make sure that when they are out doing you know the fishing activities that they aren't you know causing any damage to the environment. But what the um, what the the plaintiff in this is saying and it's a group of four family owned and operated uh, fishing companies is that wait a second this goes so far beyond the scope of the provision that the uh, of the law that the N, uh that the national maritime fishing services is using that it's it, it, it's just like you know c- just completely ridiculous they also are saying that the uh NMFS is saying that the the fishing companies have to literally pay the salaries of the government employees. <laughs> so, I mean, this has been ha- so. Like Jim said, 1984 Chevron Doctrine was you know put into place. It's been cited thousands and thousands of times in subsequent cases by the Supreme Court. But I I'm actually very optimistic about this because I saw the uh, the statements by Clarence Thomas, uh, Neil Gorsuch, and uh, you know Brett Kavanaugh. All saying that, wait a second, you know, the Sharon Doctrine has been so abused for so many years that we have to put it back in a box. So I don't know if they're going to just outright overrule it or if they're going to really, really reduce the scope, because right now all the administrative agencies have to do is say, hey, it's a reasonable, you know, request. And obviously that's a very, you know, ambiguous statement. But what this has led to, in my opinion, is the, you know, the the birth of the deep state, the birth of the administrative state, the birth of permanent Washington. And, you know, what we need to make sure is that we put these agencies back into, into place and that we make sure that Congress, because Congress writes laws, Congress writes laws, the judiciary interprets laws. The administrative state is not supposed to really have much in terms of this. They're supposed to just, you know, just execute the laws that Congress writes. So mm-hmm. I think this would be a huge, huge, you know, uh, victory for, uh, you know, those of us who do want the administrative state, you know, really, 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 you know, reduced in in the scope of its powers. So I, yeah. I am actually am, am very uh, excited to see what, uh, you know, what the Supreme Court says about this.
0: Well, as uh, as it works its way through the Supreme Court, surely we'll have more opportunities to talk about it. So we'll
3: definitely pay
0: attention to that. But we are 10 minutes long, so I'm going to wrap up the episode Uh, unless anyone has any last minute comments or anything they want to get off their chest. Hearing nothing, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this episode of the In the Tank podcast. Join us every week for a new episode. For those audio-only listeners that are catching the show on a Friday, first off, leave a review for us on iTunes. It would be greatly appreciated. Also, you can join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon Central Time, where we are streaming live on Facebook and YouTube and Rumble and Twitter. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at in the tank pod. You can uh, leave us uh, a comment or a suggestion for the show by emailing us at in the tank at gmail.com. Those people that are watching us on YouTube, you can help us out by just doing a couple of things, hitting that like button, subscribing, sharing this content, leaving a comment under the video, all things that won't cost you a penny, only it cost you a few seconds, but helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter, at Heartland Inst on Twitter, and always visit Heartland.org. Fantastic. Justin Haskins, same question.
2: At Justin T. Haskins on Twitter, Getter. I'm not going to say Parlor this time. I'm going to say Facebook and StoppingSocialism.com.
0: Don't Fantastic. go to Parlor. It's all oh. over, folks.
1: Y- you said Parlor three times.
0: <laughs> Chris, Chris Telgo. Not, okay. What do you have to pitch today?
3: Uh, heartland.org, as always, and com. We've got some new uh, articles up there, so please go check it out. Fantastic. All right. Thank
0: you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. You are fake news. <laughs>